MLK weekend. Uh, how many of you guys have a three-day weekend this weekend? Tomorrow's off. You're not going to work. You're not doing it. That's awesome. Um, it is also uh, Chelsea's birthday today, my wife. So I wanted to do this. Uh, can you guys all scream happy birthday? She's in there and won't see it, but I'm going to freak her out and send her a video uh, while she's in there, which is going to be awesome. Uh, so once I get my camera open, when you're in front of people trying to work a phone, it's an interesting... All right, ready, set, as loud as you possibly can, just go nuts. Ready, one, two, three, go! The best part of that is you didn't say her name, so now I can use that for like everything. <laughs> like the church did this special thing for you. Oh, no, that's hilarious. Thanks, guys. Um, well, we are in the midst of a brand new series uh, this morning. So last week we kicked off this new series, which is the big fancy three. It's going to come up on the screen in a moment. There it is, Mysterious Three. So we're in this series called uh, Resonate in Three Parts, super creative title. But it's basically we're going to go through the DNA of our church and dive deep into who we are, what we're about, what God is calling us to. And we're going to do that in three parts. So the first month is, all, is going to be all about what we've been talking about, uh, what it means to not have it figured out. So our key tagline is resonate as a church for people who don't have it figured out because we don't either. And that freaks a seasoned Christian out to no end. So what we want to do is, is put that to rest. So we want to figure out what that actually means, what we're talking about when we say not have it figured out. We're talking about the difference between certainty and truth. We're talking about what it means to be a follower, not a figure. Figure is a word that I just made up. Uh, and so we're going to talk about this morning. Last week we talked about mystery, what it means to kind of step into the mystery of God and how that kind of takes a humble heart to kind of go like, I'm going to walk into this kind of not having all the answers, but that's sort of what a life with Jesus is all about. So that's the first month. And then in February, part two is going to be what we know for sure. So if you're sitting there like arms crossed, like don't have figured out, what am I doing here? Next month is for you. We're going to talk about uh, resurrection. We're going to talk about the cross. We're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to talk about uh, everything that we know for sure in the Christian faith. And it's going to be sort of like your, your base Christianity 101 class thing. Cool? And then the last month, the one that I'm most excited about, we're going to touch on this a little bit today, is no matter who you are. So this is a, the last month is going to be all about, it's going to take us into Easter, all about no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter where you're coming from, you're welcome and accepted in this place. And so that's going to be a really cool month of, of, of love. Cool? Um, so I'm excited to jump in this morning. Uh, we are going to be talking about uh, what it means to be a follower. And we're going to dig up this dusty old Christian word called discipleship. And I know that's a freaky word, but we're going to discover what that means. But before we do that, I'd just love to pray and kind of center us uh, for what we're going to do this morning. Uh, Lord, I'm just so grateful uh, that we can gather together on a weekend like this uh, and, and, and just talk about you and learn about you and, and praise you and sing these songs with these words that are, that are really deep and profound that we can enter into that mysterious beauty that is you. Uh, and so this morning as we talk about this discipleship thing, Lord, I pray uh, just over this space and these, these people, uh, you give us open hearts to this topic and that we would really walk out of here uh, just a little, knowing a little bit more about you. Amen. So, uh, discipleship. It's a word uh, that I call a loaded Christian term. So to someone who's spent a lot of time in church, discipleship probably sounds like homework. 
And to someone who's never spent any time in church, discipleship sounds like something you might have to do a lot of homework to figure out what it is. It's a really big, weird word. But basically, discipleship, disciple, the root there, just basically means to follow, right? So a disciple, literally, the word means to go behind. So if we are disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, we're literally going behind Jesus. We're watching what he is doing, and we're, we're, we're figuring it out from him. And this concept is absolutely central to being a Jesus person. It's actually what Jesus calls us to the most. Uh, more specifically in our context and for this series, being a disciple is someone who cannot possibly have it figured out because there's always more to learn. And we're going to do this in a couple ways, but we're going to um, I'm going to make the case this morning that uh, God has not finished speaking, so that'll be fun, uh, and that the disciples actually had it all wrong a lot of the time, and that's okay. And then we're going to talk about uh, when Jesus used creepy language like born again and, and kingdom, what this meant, and then we're going to talk about Martin Luther King because it's Martin Luther King weekend, day tomorrow, and he was awesome. So we're going to talk about that uh, at the end. Um, so I, I want us to kind of like Put yourself in the shoes of a younger you. Maybe you're in this phase right now, I don't know. But there's a moment where we all kind of like leave home, metaphorically or physically, where we kind of, we go out into the world and we decide like this is our life and we're gonna live it a certain way and I wanna take, like I wanna take the reins and steer the direction and actually get moving in this thing. For me, that came in the form of a 2003 Honda CRV which is dead in our garage right now. If anybody wants a car, it doesn't move, but you can move it for me. Um, I, uh, I was living in the Bay Area, and I was living with my parents, and I played band in bands and stuff out of high school. And so it was like two years later. I was about to turn 20. I'm 19. And I sort of got this, like, I just woke up every morning feeling this sort of, like, pull and discontent. Maybe you can feel it. Like, discontent is this this odd vehicle that kind of moves us into the next phase of life. When we start feeling like, Ugh, and angsty, that's often what like puts us into adventure and into risk. So I, uh, I signed up, enrolled in a music school, and by I say signed up, there was absolutely no application process, they just wanted your money. So I went to this music school, signed up, and, and it was in Los Angeles, and at the same time, uh, I needed a job, because I needed to support myself in some kind of way. So I went to my dad, who's a pastor, and I was like, Dad, is there any like kind of, do you know of any churches down there that maybe I could get like a worship leader gig thing at? Uh, and so he like threw it out to all of his church buddies, and it turned out that this other church plant in Calabasas needed a worship leader and a youth pastor, and they threw the 19-year-old in there just like cold. So I was a youth pastor, and I was a worship leader right off the bat. But the, that's not the part of the story I want to get to. Part of the story I want to get to is as I was moving down to Los Angeles, I took it upon myself to say I am going to find a space to live. And my parents were like, we could go down, we could make a trip of it, like, we could find you like an apartment and everything. And I was like, no, 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 I've got this. I don't want to waste the time. I don't want to do the trip. I'm going to go online and I'm going to find a space to live and it's going to be perfect. So on Craigslist, I found a beautiful home in Granada Hills. Sounded lovely. Granada Hills, and it was massive, this big, gorgeous house, $400 a month, steal. In Granada Hills, I figured I could split, like I could go to Calabasas for work and then I could go to Hollywood for school and it would be like this really easy commute because I had no idea like about Los Angeles traffic at this time. I had no real perception of how awful that really was gonna be. Uh, so I pack up all my stuff, I get in the car and I drive down, I get off the grapevine, I arrive at this home and it was big and it was beautiful. The picture did not lie there. 
but as soon as I got in the door, I was greeted by Andre. Andre later became my friend, but Andre is a six, like five, huge guy covered in tattoos, his shirt was off, and he opens the door and he's like, who are you? That's the greeting that I got first thing at my new home. I was like, I think I live here? And he was like, come with me. So I follow this huge man with all these tattoos into, the house is gorgeous as you first walk in, and then you quickly realize that like to the right is where the owner lives, with his family, and then to the left, in the size of like three living rooms, there are no less than 25 people living in this house. And I walk in and my heart just sinks. I was like, oh no. And the one thing that I was even more oh no about was like my parents were right. <laughs> and now I'm gonna have, so I get freaked. I actually ended up having to stay there for a week. It was the strangest home ever. Like there were, there were 25 people living in this place for $400 a month. I had paid two months in advance and for my little budget at that time, that was a huge deal. So I was out $800, non-refundable. So I decided like maybe I'll stick this out for a week, right? I'll see if I can do this. Terrible decision. Somebody brought pigs. There were pigs in the backyard. <laughs> like this house was insane. So I finally like, I, I, I call my mom basically weeping and I'm like, mom, come help. Please come get me. And she, uh, she flew down to LA got me out of the, the crazy pig home and took, oh, and there was one shower, one shower for 25 people, that's, that's another note. But so she took me, we found a place and we went. So the beginning of my story, my adult life begins in this insane house, having no idea what I've just gotten myself into. But as I look back on that now, I look back on that as the beginning of this new adventure for me. It was the beginning of this new life that I was going to own and take. So I want us all to place ourselves in that moment where you realize I'm going to step out and do something. And I also want you to think, because like that moment for a lot of us was really scary. right? That moment where we decide to move into something and take ownership of our lives and, and make something of ourselves, there's always risk. It's never certain. And when we walk into that, we're walking into adventure. Rocking into something very humbly, holding it loosely, going like, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know I'm supposed to do this. I know I'm supposed to be here, and I know I'm supposed to follow. So I want to go to Scripture, which is always a good place to do when you're just preaching. I want to go to Scripture and, um, and read about how Jesus actually called his first disciples and how they stepped out into this adventure and this risk and this new phase of life. So we're going to go uh, to Scripture here. This is, it starts at verse 18. It's going to be on the screen behind me. It says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net uh, into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, and they were in a boat with their family, or with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So, I want to get into the symbolism of this a little bit, because it sounds kind of flippant at first read, right? Like, it sounds like these guys were bored on a boat, and Jesus shows up and is like, hey, I got this other life, and they're like, down. So we, we leave the net, okay, cool, we're, we're with you. Like, it wasn't a big, it was a simple ask and a simple win. But the, the cultural significance of this is actually enormous, and especially as it says in the last, they left the boat, and they left their father and followed him. So in this day, you would have been apprenticed, right? So from a very, very young age, your family had a trade, or your father had a trade. So young boys would apprentice with their father, and they would train in that trade, and that would be their life. That would be their life trajectory, right? So their father, like Simon and all the disciples, 
their fathers were fishermen, and so they were fishermen, and they had learned this trade. This was their life. This is where they were going. This is how they were going to spend it. So the actual significance in this is Jesus walking up and saying, hey, I know you have this life. I know you have this trade. I know you have this thing that you've got figured out, but I'm actually I'm calling you into a brand new life. So you're a fisherman. That's your life trajectory, but I actually want you to fish for people. So he's saying, all that training you have, I want you to put it aside, and I want you to follow me and start all over from scratch. Essentially, they're becoming childlike again. They have to go back into that sort of like, I'm a kid learning from this rabbi, this teacher. I am now a follower all over again. So when Jesus uses this language of being born again, it makes a lot more sense when you think about the context that these disciples came. When he says, like, you've got to be born again to truly understand what this means. It means you need to become, you need to take the posture of a student, of a child, of a lifelong learner to get this. And his invitation is also extremely interesting uh, because there were rabbis in this day, and having disciples was not a new thing. And so he had disciples, but every rabbi had disciples. In fact, uh, Rabbi Akiva is an enormously famous and influential rabbi who came just a little bit after Jesus. Uh, He had around 24,000 followers, 24,000 disciples who would follow him around. Like, that's huge, right? Jesus had 12. But here's the difference. For Akiva and for every other rabbi in that time, the disciples would approach the teacher or the rabbi and say, I want to follow you. But in the Jesus story, Jesus goes to them. So there's 24,000 people that want to follow Akiva, but Jesus comes to 12. See, some of us were handed this Christianity, which I think is extremely dangerous, which is that like, to become a Christian, you need to invite Jesus into your heart, and it's about you personally. And while that's true, and it's beautiful, and there's, there's lovely symbolism in there, I think it's a little bit dangerous and tricky, because in the scripture, all we see is Jesus inviting us. There is not an invitation to God, like, God, come on, get in my life. No, it's, it's, it's accepting the invitation that Jesus has already thrown out. There are so many instances of Jesus basically saying, the kingdom of God is here, and it is to come. And that's a very confusing concept. So I want to talk about the kingdom for a second. Jesus would always talk about this kingdom, right? It, that was his number one go-to thing. He would say, the kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like this. It looks like this. It acts like this. It is this. And he would use this language of it is here and it is to come. So it's near and it's at hand, but it is to come. And that's extremely confusing when we think about it. How can it be both here and out there in the future to come? That's, a, that's sort of a weird concept, and it was really hard for these disciples to get their head around. It's really hard for the disciples to get their head around a lot, which we're going to cover in just a second. But this kingdom thing, and, and the, grasping that it is both right in front of you and down the line is a hugely beneficial thing. So what I want to do for us this morning is frame it in sort of a different way. All of us are in a relationship of some kind, yes? We are all, we have friends, maybe we have a spouse, whatever it is. I'm going to use my wife, Chelsea, as an example. When I am in relationship with Chelsea, right, I am both in relationship with her right now and there is an expectancy of what's to come, right? In a marriage relationship or in like a a, a loving relationship, there's sort of this like you're here with me now and we have this relationship, but there are goals and things that are going to happen that we get to look forward to. So we're both in relationship now and we're in relationship down the line. Maybe Maybe there's kids, maybe there's a home, maybe there's something like that, but we realize that we're in this phase of this relationship now, but there is an expectancy 
of what's to come. We are planning our lives together, right? And so when we look at the kingdom and we hear Jesus talk about this thing that's both here and to come, we can realize that we can be in relationship with this God, this kingdom, this thing, right here and right now with the expectancy that awesome, crazy things are going to happen down the line. So what Jesus is doing is really he's putting hope out. He's saying it's here, but man, just wait and see. It also totally has to do with what we talk about when we talk about not having it figured out. Because if it's both here and it's to come, it's going to be constantly revealing more of itself. God is going to be constantly giving us more and more of who he is. And we're also in relationship with him in the here and the now. I thought that was kind of a cool way to think of the kingdom. All right, well, let's fast forward a little bit. Um, I want to go on to another scripture that's going to be very uh, confusing at first, but we're going to do some unpacking, and then we're going to do uh, some talk of numbers, which just, that's for me. Bear with me through that. Um, I'm a nerd. All right, tell the story. So this comes out of Mark 8, 14, and it's called Understanding the Bread. Starts at verse 14. It says, Jesus' disciples had forgotten to bring any bread. They only had one loaf with them in the boat. He gave them strict orders. Pay attention to this. Watch out and be on guard for the yeast of the Pharisees as well as the yeast of Herod. The disciples discussed this amongst themselves. He said, this is, oh, sorry. Disciples discussed this among themselves. He said this because we have no bread. Jesus knew what they were discussing and said, why are you talking about the fact you don't have any bread? Don't you grasp what has happened? Don't you understand Are your hearts so resistant to what God is doing? Are your hearts so resistant to what God is doing? Don't you have eyes? Why can't you see? Don't you have ears? Why can't you hear? Don't you remember when I broke the five loaves of bread for those 5,000 people, how many baskets full of leftovers did you gather? They answered, 12. And when I broke the seven loaves of bread for those 4,000 people, how many baskets full of leftovers did you gather? They answered, seven. Jesus said to them, and you still don't understand? So, I don't understand when I read this. I mean, first, first glance here, this is really confusing. Jesus pops out of nowhere and he's like, yeast. So there, he's talking about yeast. And so, okay, so this comes on the heels of two of Jesus's like craziest miracles. So Jesus would attract these crowds and he would teach and he would do that for long periods of time. And at the end of the day, he would be like, we, have to, we can't just like send these people home hungry. They have a long journey. People would come from all over to hear him speak. And so he would take these loaves of bread. He'd be like, how much bread do we have, right? And this is why they're, like, they're focusing on the loaves of bread. They'd be like, we have like seven loaves. He'd be like, cool, give them to me. All of a sudden, he would bless it. And then he would say, hand them out to everyone. And he would feed 4,000 people miraculously with these couple loaves of bread. And this happened twice, once for 5,000 people and once for 4,000 people, right? Now, the cultural significance of this is huge, and I have Google and books, but the disciples didn't, and they're sitting in this boat going like, he's talking about this because we forgot the bread, right? And, complete, and Jesus just goes like, guys, what are you talking about? Look deeper. It's not the literal. Look past the literal and find the meaning in what I am telling you. Right? So in the Jewish mind, yeast, let's focus on the yeast first. In the Jewish mind, yeast was often a metaphor for sin or a teaching of sin. And if you think about what yeast does in bread, it actually makes a lot of sense when we're talking about sin. If, if you just leave like, unleavened bread out, yeast from the air will get into it. Right? And it will change. It will change the physical shape of that bread. It will cause it to rise. It will change it. 
from the inside out, right? And so as we're talking about the concept of sin, that makes a lot of sense. There are things that can creep into our lives and actually change us for the worse, right? So he's saying, beware the yeast. So that's the yeast. But then he mentions the Pharisees, and then he mentions Herod. So he's like, beware the yeast of, of, of Herod and the Pharisees, right? So like, what? Well, what were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were the dominant religious group at the time, right? So we have the sin, the teachings of the dominant religious group at the time, and then we have Herod, who is the closest political figure. So we have the political and we have the religious, and what Jesus is saying, hey, beware of these two groups. What I'm doing is something different than both the high religious order and the government thing. So beware the teachings of the strict religious order and politics, right? That's what he's actually saying, okay? And, and that means that I'm coming to redeem everything. I'm coming to change everything. I am the Messiah, right? So that's what he was hoping they would get. And when they hear this, they're like, well, we have one loaf of bread, so he's probably a little angry that we can't eat later. I mean, that, that's the kind of mindset they're in because they're so stuck in just the literal and the here and the now. Now, the numbers are very, very significant. So let's play a little number game, shall we? And bear with me. This is just to indulge me. Um, we have numbers in here. We have five, we have 12, and we have seven. So he says, do you remember when I broke the five loaves of bread? So what's the significance in five? Now, the disciples here should have gotten this because in the Jewish tradition at this time, these numbers were absolutely vital. They were hugely significant, right? Especially the number seven, which is my favorite number. And who's, where's Elle? She said to me this morning, she's like, seven's my favorite number. And I was like, are you kidding? This is her first time here. I was like, you're going to stay here, <laughs> especially <laughs> after this. Uh, so we have the number five, we have the number 12, and we have the number seven. All hugely religious numbers. So five is a, is a religious symbol for grace. There are five books in the Pentateuch that Moses wrote. It's, it's, this, it's grace. So when he breaks the five loaves, grace, four, and they had 12 baskets left over, 12 is not only just a symbol, like they could simply look around and realize that there were 12 of them in the boat. Like that's, that's the bigger thing here. If they're all stuck in the literal, there are 12 of them in this boat right now. Like why do you say 12? Oh, well, maybe there's 12 of us, but it's actually deeper than that. We have a lot of time to look back on the disciples and use that. But for them, 12 was the 12 nations of Israel. It was the entire nation of Israel. Twelve was a, a, a symbol for this complete version of Israel, right? So I have grace and five, and then we have 12 left over. Essentially, grace for Israel, right? And then we have the number seven, which is such a good number. Uh, number seven is hugely significant, too. Usually it means, like, a divine order has been completed. There are seven days in the creation story. Seven usually means, like, something is finished. It is complete. But here, it doesn't really make much sense in that context. So I did a little digging, and in Deuteronomy 7.1, it says, when they go into the promised land, Jesus is gonna, or God is going to remove seven other nations who are bigger and more powerful than them. So we have both grace for the 12 and grace for the seven. We have grace for Israel, and we have grace for these seven other powerful nations. Essentially, what Jesus is saying here through these symbols, through these huge things that are going to last, is he's saying, I have come for grace for everyone, for Israel and for everyone. And what he was hoping so badly in that boat is that the disciples would catch on to this. Right after this story, he heals a blind man, and he does it twice. And it's almost a wink to the disciples, like, you guys seriously cannot see. You're, you're still blind. You're with me. You're here walking with me, but you still can't see. And unfortunately, the church in America has that problem a lot. 
Christians have that problem a lot. We are walking, supposedly, we're walking alongside Christ, and yet we cannot see sometimes. We are blind to the things that are going on. We always have to be pushing ourselves to go to the source. When we find something weird in the Bible, like this yeast thing, Google is a very powerful tool. You can find lots of meaning. We should take some time and pause and study and think about it and pray about it and look into it deeper because often what God is calling us to is something way deeper than the surface, right? It's the story last week, the mystery of coming out of the boat, Peter walking out onto the water into the mystery. Jesus is always calling us into a new thing. Come with me. I'm going to show you more, right? So in light of this uh, weekend, I wanted to uh, just tell a story about Martin Luther King because here's a man who literally had to deal with the American church, as it were, being, walking with Jesus but being completely blind to the real things of this world. I read uh, this week a letter from Birmingham Jail. Has anybody read that letter? Anybody seen that? So today it's a really famous letter. And in fact, his, uh, his quote... Um, it says, injustice anywhere is a threat to injustice everywhere, right? That comes from that. And, and what really shocked me about this letter and reading it this week uh, was that I always assumed that that letter was written to, like, the government or it was written to people in general. But I had no idea and was so shocked to find out this was a letter written to clergy, to rabbis, to pastors, to the church. It was a letter written from a jail cell to the church pleading with the church to move pleading with the church to try and have compassion and more love. I'm going to read some, uh, some excerpts here. Um, uh, where are we? Yeah, okay. He says, I must reiterate that I have been disappointed with the church. I do not say this as one of those negative critics who can always find something wrong with the church. I say this as a minister of the gospel who loves the church, who is nurtured in its bosom, who has been sustained by its spiritual blessings and who will remain true to it as long as the cord of life shall lengthen. Then he goes on to say, in the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard many ministers say, those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I have watched many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which makes a strange, unbiblical distinction between body and soul, between the sacred and the secular. And finally, ends it with this. This is, he says, but the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church cannot recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irreverent social club with no meaning. For the, 21st, for the 20th century. Every day, I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. Does that sound familiar? That was written in 1963. And as I read that, my heart just broke. Because the same stuff that he was dealing with in that jail cell, it's still going on. And the church still isn't there. We're still slow to move, slow to act, when the church should be the first people on the ground, the hands and feet of God, right? It makes me think of that part in that verse where it says, are your hearts so resistant to what God is doing that you can't see? 
So what I want to ask us this morning is where our hearts could be resisting. What, what is it now? Martin Luther was writing this in 2017. What would he be talking about? Because there is still stuff that we are not moving on. There's stuff that we are not acting on. And I'm telling you, the, the job of the church is to do this. And without it, he's right. And it's happened already. Millions of people have walked away because they're disillusioned. They don't get it. They're like, we're talking about all of this service and these hands and feet and like this God that's so gracious and loving, but at, at the same time, we're not really doing anything. We're just kind of hanging out in a room talking about it. As we're talking about the DNA of this church and what we want to become, especially in this series, like I'm just, I'm praying so hard. My worst nightmare is to receive a letter like this. I don't want to be the clergy that he's writing to, and I don't want us to be a church that he's talking about. I want us to be a church that is called to more than sitting around in a room. We're called to actually do what God is talking about in these scriptures, to go deeper, to get out of the boat, right? So I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to give us just a a couple seconds of silence. One, just to remember Martin Luther King Jr. and the incredible works that he did. And two, just to think about our little church to pray about our little church and to pray about what we're going to do this year, what we can be doing this year to actually be these hands and feet, to actually do what God is calling us to do. Amen? So let me, uh, let me pray, and then I'm just going to leave. We'll, actually, let's do, we'll do 30 seconds of, of just quiet reflection, and then I'll, I'll close us in prayer. God, I, just, I thank you so much for this weekend that we get to remember such a great leader like Martin Luther King Jr. and God, his heart for you and for the church in the midst of his crazy struggle with the racial injustices in this country, that he still pointed to the church and he was like, I still love this thing. I just can't figure out why it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. So God, I just, I pray for us and I pray for just the church in general. I pray that on, on weekends like this, you would cause us to reflect and seriously go like, whoa, who are we keeping out? right now? Who aren't we letting in? So God, as we just reflect in silence for just 30 seconds, Lord, I, I pray that you would move and speak to us. And uh, yeah. Amen.